Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. And hey, welcome online family. We're glad you are here. Like it, share it, let the world know um, we have good news. Amen? We have a good, good father. We're going to talk about that good, good father today uh, as we continue walking through the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, start turning with us to the book of Acts chapter 8. If we haven't met yet, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure and a privilege as always to open God's word with you this morning. There's a number of reasons that we're walking through the book of Acts, but one of them is that 2020 kind of gave us permission to kind of press the, the reset button on a couple of things. Uh, we, uh, we're in the midst of the pandemic, uh, and we were doing uh, church online only. Uh, and we, we started asking ourselves some questions like, huh, I wonder, I wonder if this is what it might have been like for the early church uh, who couldn't gather but could only scatter and still be the church, you know, without internet, of course. Uh, we, we asked ourselves questions like, gosh, what, what would it be like if, if we really, through this pandemic experience, equipped our people to not just go to church, but truly be the church? We asked ourselves, man, I wonder if we're ever going to go back to normal, which we promptly concluded, no, we can't. We can't afford to go back to normal. We can't afford to go back to where church is just something that we do. It's just this slice of the pie of our lives. Instead, Father God, we prayed, continue to give us wisdom and discernment and energy and momentum as we continue this kind of transition that we've been on as a church for the last number of years. This transition from being about Sunday to being about every day. To being about equipping you, the saints, the church, the people of God, to live in community and on mission, making disciples in the everyday stuff of life where you live, where you work, where you learn, and where you play. And what better place to do that than look at the book of Acts. What God did when he birthed his church and sent his spirit to come and indwell and join himself to the people of God, equipping us with the word of God and compelling us by the spirit of God to go and to love the world and to knowing the majesty and beauty of Jesus Christ. That, that is who we are, by the way. That, that's our identity. We are a family of missionaries called to go and serve the people where we live, where we work, where we learn, and where we play. We're a family because God has adopted us into his forever family. We are servants because Jesus comes and lives in us who came not to be served but to give his life as a ransom, Mark 10, 45. That's the sacrificial life that calls us home. We are called to serve one another. And we're missionaries because the spirit of God who sent Jesus into mission, comes and lives in us and compels us to go and live on mission as well. This is who we are. And the book of Acts is what God did when he first came on the scene. We're talking about our family history here as we look at the book of Acts. And so we have been, for eight chapters so far, beating this drum of mission. And we're gonna keep beating this drum of mission because church, we are missionaries. 
I know you think of missionaries, many of us, of, as those people who go to the far-flung reaches of the world, to the unreached people groups, and they are missionaries. But they're missionaries called unto the ends of the earth. Guess what comes first? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the hinge. It's the anchor of the entire book. You remember Jesus He has been raised from the dead and he is with his disciples before he goes to ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. And he tells his disciples, I am going to send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes upon you, you will receive power to what? To be my witnesses. He says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. And so our prayer as pastors and the elders, as the staff of GBC, is that we would begin, all of us, you included, we would begin to see what God sees when we look at our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, our unto the ends of the earth. This weekend's really special in the text because we move out of Jerusalem for the very first time in the book of Acts. And we begin getting into the ministry of witness to Judea and to Samaria. And we're picking up the story right where Dustin left off last week. Stephen, the deacon's body, lay dead right outside of Jerusalem's gates. The stones are still covered with his blood. The first Christian martyr is lying a stone's throw away from the greatest persecutor and enemy of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 starts like this. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Say all. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Interesting. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen. They made great lamentation over him. Stephen wasn't complaining, though. But Saul, verse 3. But Saul, he was ravaging the church. And he was going and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women. And he committed them to prison. However, our attention isn't Saul this weekend. Pastor Dustin's going to pick up next week and introduce us to Saul this week. This week we get to meet Philip. Philip's another one of the deacons, another one of the seven that God called out back in Acts 6 to kind of meet the needs of the widows who are getting overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Philip is another one of those, uh, how did Dustin talk about it last week? Philip's another one of those underqualified, regular Joe, willing and here I am, send me, followers of Jesus who believed God was capable of big things. And because of that, God did big things through Philip. I I hope that inspires you. That God can and will and has done incredible things from underqualified people. Some of you are like, yeah. And some of you are like, oh man, that means God's probably going to use me. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's the goal. That's the plan. That's the mission. All of us are useful to the kingdom because all of us, those of us who have confessed Christ have been indwelt by the very spirit of God and have spiritual gifts and talents and abilities that God plans to deploy for the purposes of his kingdom. And since that's the case, this morning we're going to address the missionary's response to resistance. I don't normally title my messages, at least not in the prep stage, but this is what we're addressing 
us, missionaries of Jesus Christ, we will experience resistance. And so we need to know how to respond to that. Jesus promised us. He said, listen, if you love me and if you follow me, you will have trouble in this world. You will face resistance. You will face persecution. Uh, but don't worry. I have what? Overcome the world. Do not fear. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to experience resistance for standing up for Jesus. Some of us, we're going to experience large-scale resistance. Talking persecution. The kind we see here in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. But most of us, at least right now in the culture in which we live, we're going to face a lot of smaller scale resistance for standing up for Jesus. We may not lose our lives like Stephen did, but we might lose our livelihoods, our reputations, some relationships. Our culture is kind of hostile right now to those who stand on a biblical worldview and believe that Jesus is Lord and sovereign and can tell me to do what he wants me to do. And so as people of faith in Jesus Christ, we will face resistance. Lots of smaller scale things that are part and parcel of living in the world, but not of the world. And so this morning we're looking at a few of the missionaries' responses to resistance. There's at least two that I find in chapter 8. And let me just confess out front, we cannot preach the entire chapter of 8. If I preached like I felt, you'd need your headlights when you left. So we're just going to have to kind of do a, a flyby. And Dustin's been saying that all along. You've got some homework to do. Your homework is to read verses 4 all the way to 40. You're going to need to dig in, dive in, answer some questions, jot down some thoughts, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's two responses to resistance that I want to draw our attention to in this chapter. But first, let's look back at verse 1. A great persecution, halfway through the verse, a great persecution has arisen against the church in Jerusalem so that all the Christians were scattered except the apostles. Now, we don't really know why the apostles weren't scattered and run out of town. My gut says it was so that 2,000 plus years later, I could look at you this Sunday morning right here, right now, and tell you that God used another one of the underqualified to keep the mission moving forward. Man, I hope that encourages you. That's the plan. And because that's the plan, it's important to know what some of our responses to resistance need to be. And here's our first response to resistance as a missionary of Jesus. We need to learn to see the sovereignty of God. We need to learn to see the sovereign hand of God over all things. Verse 2, and there arose on that day a great persecution. And so much so that all Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. Here's our first response to resistance as missionaries of Jesus. We need to see the sovereignty of God. Jesus had been clear, had he not? Acts chapter 1 verse 8, and you will be my witnesses. He didn't say you should be. He didn't say you better be. He didn't say you might be. He said you will be. And we serve a promise-keeping God. Now, hindsight's 2020. We know that God's recipe for creating witnesses in Jerusalem was Pentecost, the festival, yearly festival of Pentecost, where Jews from around the known world would come and fill up the city of Jerusalem to worship. And what happened, Acts chapter 2, on that day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell on those 120 believers. And man, the third watch of the day, every one of those 120 believers started proclaiming the glory of God in languages they didn't know, but everybody else did. Powerful. 
And Peter preached the first Christian message and 3,000 souls get added to the church, mega church, on the spot, just like that. So God used Pentecost to saturate Jerusalem with the good news of the gospel. That's how the ministry of witness went to Jerusalem. But it seems based on this passage that for God to move the witness out to Judea and Samaria, it would take the death of one of his saints. And because of that, a great persecution that would run all of the Christians out of town, probably with only the clothes on their back. Hear me, folks. I am convinced that God allowed the persecution of the early church to move the mission forward. Now, don't put that on a Christian gift uh, greeting card. It's not going to sell any books. It's not going to fill any arenas. It will not get you on TBN. It's probably going to get you some sideways looks from your believing friends and some hostility to suggest that our loving God would allow something as heinous as the murder of one of his deacons and a full-scale persecution of the church of Jesus Christ in order to move the gospel forth, which is why we must see the sovereignty of God. Because that which reorients us to the mission of God is always a gift of God no matter how much it disrupts or how costly it is. Let, let me say that again. It is a gift of God to reorient our lives back to the mission of God, no matter how costly or disruptive it is. If you have breath in your lungs and the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you are not here to make a living. You are here to make a legacy of gospel deposits. Do you know that, church? If that wasn't the case, you'd have confessed Christ, we would have took you out back and put you down. Instead, God left us, indwelt by his spirit, led by his spirit to be about our father's business. And God loves us enough to gloriously intrude into our lives to move us back to the mission. We serve a glorious intruder, folks. And it is not uncommon for God to gloriously intrude on our lives. He's done it all throughout the scriptures. Let's talk about Abraham. Oh, Father Abraham had many sons, but he didn't always. Instead, what he had was a lot of goats and sheep and oxen. He was rich. Genesis 13, Abraham had so much money, lots of silver, lots of gold, lots of servants, lots of cattle. But our glorious intruder God came and said, Abraham, I want you to leave the land you know. And I want you to go to a land you don't know. I want you to trust me. Leave everything you know. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And through your seed, I'm going to bless the world. And praise God, God intruded in Abraham's life. Let's talk about Mary. You remember Mary, the mother of Jesus? Oh, she had the perfect wedding planned. A small Jewish community wedding in Nazareth to her soon-to-be hard-working husband, Joseph, who had a great reputation in the community. And what happened? An uninvited angel came and smashed every one of her plans for the good of humanity and the glory of God. And thank you, Mary, for saying, be it unto me. Be it unto me. Where are my fishers at? Fishermen, fisherwomen, you love to fish? Imagine Simon, Andrew, Peter, James, John. Imagine you're fishing, you're doing the thing you love, and all of a sudden Jesus comes and intrudes. Hey, y'all, put your... Put your nets down. Come, I'll make you into fishers of men. Glorious intruder. Matthew, 
the tax collector. Got a little CPA gig going. Everyone hates him because he's working for Romans, but he is killing it. He's set for life. And God comes and says, no, 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 come and follow me. And on and on and on and on, the glorious intruder comes because he loves us enough to disrupt our regularly scheduled programs because how easy it is for us to get off mission. Next week, we'll learn about Saul of Tarsus, who would go by a different name, Paul, the apostle Paul. Remember Saul ravaging the church? The Osama bin Laden of his day, stamping out those Christian invitals to the glory of his God, he thought. And then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and what happened? Blinded him, and he said, we're going to take that zeal and that passion, Paul, and we're going to put it into the pursuits of my kingdom purposes. And thank God he did. We have a third of the New Testament and the church's birth all around the world because of Paul's obedience. We're talking about a God who loves us so much that he will gloriously intrude into our lives, even through hardship and loss and tragedy. For the sake of reorienting us back to the mission of God in our lives. It's, it's not unlike God to gloriously intrude, folks. And though the death of Stephen was tragic, I don't think Stephen counted it as loss. As the stones are pummeling his body and blood is leaking from the cuts and the wounds, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus didn't stand. He sat at the right hand. You know why he sat? Because it declared his work was done and his posture was one of supremacy but he stood up to receive Stephen into glory and I wonder I wonder if Paul who understood the sovereignty of God so well I wonder if Paul reminisced that day seeing Stephen's face aglow in his mind's eye and remembering Stephen's final words of forgive them father for they know not what they do I wonder if Paul was reminiscing of those things when he wrote these words in Philippians chapter 1 For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, to the degree that we know the sovereignty of God, we are able to see all of the things of life as a gift. We're not calling bad good, but we are acknowledging that we serve a sovereign God who can make good out of bad. Call this the see-through power of God. That's what I call this, the see-through power of God. And the see-through power of God is this. We learn to look at our circumstances in life, not as whether or not they are good for me or bad for me, but that they are God for me. I learned this from Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Do you remember? I've, I've shared this before. Chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, around that area. Paul's writing to the Philippians. He says, hey, I, I don't want you guys to be ignorant. I, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances, my chains, he's in prison in Rome as he writes this letter. He's not sure if he's going to get out of prison. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that my chains, my imprisonment, it's really working for the greater progress of the gospel. What was the greater progress of the gospel? That every single one of the guards in Caesar's palace, not the casino, but in Caesar's palace, the entire Praetorian guard, they had come to know that Paul's imprisonment was, in the, was for the causes of Christ. 
verse 14, and that all of the brothers who heard about Paul's boldness in prison had become more bold and confident on the outside. Here's the point. Paul wasn't looking at his chains. He was looking past them. That's the see-through power of God. If you belong to the family of God, then everything that comes into our lives first comes from the Father, then through the hands of the Son, and it always reaches us full of the Spirit. Everything that comes into our life comes from the Father, through the hands of the Son, and it reaches us full in the Spirit. Which begs this question, church, look over the landscape of your life for a moment. Where is God gloriously interrupting your regularly scheduled program? To reorient you to the mission that God has called you to be and to do. Whether that is beginning to disciple your children. Or live on mission at the workplace. Or to begin to engage people in gospel conversations at school students or at the gym. Or maybe it's opening up your Bible and inviting the Spirit of God to begin to speak to your heart. Because you don't know how to listen for your Heavenly Father's voice so that you can share it with other people. Where is God gloriously interrupting? Have you considered that in your promotions or in your demotions or in your setbacks or setups... That all of these things have been moved by God sovereignly ordaining all of those twists and turns to set you up and give you opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. This is why we need to see the sovereign hand of our good and our loving and our faithful God in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And maybe you're wondering, maybe you're new and you have no idea what the sovereignty of God is. Uh, let, me, let, me try to, let me try to do this without delving too deeply into this Mount Everest of biblical teaching. The sovereignty of God is this. The free exercise of God's supreme authority in executing and administering his purposes. This is one of the towering truths that transcends all theology. God does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, with who he pleases especially when it comes to saving undeserving sinners. And if something happens in this world, folks, whether by the power of men, the power of nature, the power of machinery, etc., God has the power and the authority to at least prevent it from happening. And if he does not prevent it from happening, that means at least this much. He has chosen to let it happen. And that does not mean that he applauds it at all. It doesn't mean that he's in favor of it insofar as he gives divine sanction to it, but he does allow it to happen. In so allowing, he makes a decision, and in making that decision, he is absolutely and utterly sovereign. And as far as my own heart and mind have come to grips with this beautiful and overwhelming doctrine to the degree that I understand God's love and kindness shown and displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ, can I know that God is good? It's the only way. Apart from the work of Jesus at the cross, dying for our sins, raising for our salvation, I don't know how to wrap my mind around a good God allowing brokenness to happen. But I do know that he's good and that the day will come where it will make sense. And so we begin to ask the spirit of God to grow us up and mature us, to not look at the things in our life 
as whether they're good or bad, but that they are God for us. God, give us eyes to see you at work in the midst of this thing. This is the see-through power of God. Paul wasn't looking at his chains in Philippi. He was looking through them. No matter how bad a circumstance is, God. And here's the deal, church. These normal, everyday, unqualified Christians like Philip in Acts chapter 8, they did the same thing, even in the midst of persecution, with their hearts sad because of the loss of their friend Stephen. They fled Jerusalem preaching the word of God, recognizing that as they were going, they had a mission. They had a call of God on their life. The first response to resistance for the missionary of Jesus is to see the sovereignty of God in all things, over all things, orchestrating all things, and never forgetting that God sees what we don't see and that he's painting on a canvas much larger than we could ever fathom or imagine and that he loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. We need to see the sovereignty of God. The second response to resistance is this is that in our going, we would always sow gospel seeds. We see that in verse 4. As they went, persecuted, kicked out of Jerusalem, they went sowing gospel seeds as they went. In their going, they preached the word. They made disciples. They loved the unlovable. They moved in the direction of those who were different, those who were outsiders, who were on the fringes of the faith. That's why Acts chapter 8 is such an important chapter, and I wish we had time to get into all the nitty-gritty of it. But Philip would, God would use Philip initially to go and minister to the Samaritans. When you hear Samaritans, you're supposed to cringe a little bit. Here's why. In the reign of Solomon, Israel divided into two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes were in the northern kingdom. Two of the other tribes were in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell into Assyrian captivity around 722. And as a result, they were carted off. Southern kingdom lasted about a hundred more years. And then they fell into captivity as well. Guess who came? Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, wiped them out. But the main, the main difference between those two kingdoms and those two camps is that those Jews who got carted off to Assyrian captivity, they broke a big no-no. They intermarried with foreign women. They crossed the bloodlines. Mosaic law said, no, 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 don't, don't, don't go there. And so when Israel was finally released from exile and captivity and they came back and they reestablished the ministry and their lives in Jerusalem, guess who didn't come back to Jerusalem? The Samaritans. You see this hostility in John chapter 4. Jesus shows up to the well. He's thirsty. He sits down. He's not just looking for a drink. He's looking for the woman, the Samaritan woman, who sneaks out to get her water at the highest, hottest part of the day. And he says to her, woman, give me something to drink. And she says, hold on, wait a what? You're, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. What are you doing talking to me? Because there's such hostility between Jew and Samaritan. And Jesus, of course, says, woman, if you knew who I was and you knew that I was offering you a water that would quench your every thirst, you'd be asking me for a drink. 
And of course, this piqued her curiosity, but it didn't go far enough because, of course, she starts arguing about theology. She says, no, 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 no. You, you Jews, you Jews think you know the truth. You, you say we need to worship God over in Jerusalem, but my ancestors, they worship God right here on Mount Gerizim as the Samaritans. And what is Jesus' response there? Jesus' response is, you don't know what you're talking about. Salvation comes from the Jews. We know what we're talking about, but I need you to know that the day is coming, woman. The day is coming where God's not going to care what mountain we're on. The day is coming where we will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And those are the ones that the Father is even now looking for. And here, Acts chapter 8, is that moment. Because Philip brings the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And later on in the story, the apostles would bring the Spirit so that the Samaritans might worship the Father for the first time in spirit and truth. This is the beauty of the gospel. It breaks down the hostilities and the divisions and the barriers between humanity. It has always been about that. And it must continue to be about that. That's why as the people of God, we need to lay down our divisions and our barriers. White, black, rich, poor, male, female, Scythian, Greek, slave, free, all in Christ. We are one. That does not remove the cultural differences that we have. We celebrate our differences. But we rejoice in the oneness that we have in Christ. That's what the gospel was about. And that's why the apostles needed to come over to Samaria. They needed to authenticate the genuine work of God that was happening within the Samaritans. And the Samaritans needed to know, as Jesus said, salvation comes from the Jews. They needed to see that the Spirit of God came from the hands of the apostles. See, that's what's interesting about Acts chapter 8. God begins to do different things in Acts chapter 8 and 9 and 10 that he had not yet done at all whatsoever. See, up until this point in the book of Acts, all we see surrounding the work of salvation is God going forth and saving masses. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost fell, 3,000 folks. A couple of chapters later on Solomon's porch, we got 2,000 more people coming to faith. Here in Acts chapter 8, you got all the Samaritans coming to faith in Christ. The many, the many, the many. Guess what? The next story in Acts chapter 8 is the ministry of the many to the ministry of one. The Ethiopian eunuch. Another individual who was on the fringes of faith. But not only the Ethiopian eunuch. You know who's next? Saul. You know who's next? Cornelius. You know who's next? Lydia. But God is doing a work here. Moving from the many, moving to the one. And so that's all I can give you in the, in the story about Samaria. You're going to have to go and do your homework. Read the passage. I want to zero in on some of the story of Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. But here's, here's a quick commercial break and an invitation for you. I know you're going to have questions as you study this passage. Please study this passage. It's significant. And as you're looking through this passage, man, jot down your questions. And here's the invitation. Email me them. I will answer them in full length, okay? I mean, like, listen, I like writing novels, so, like, be expected to read what I write. There's my email address. Here's one better, though. Come with your questions next Wednesday night. Let's have a conversation in real time about them. 
Pastor Dustin and I and Jonathan, one of our Grace University teachers, we hang out here and we watch a really cool video on Acts where the, the members of the book of Acts, the characters, they kind of tell their story in a thematic way. And then we break off into small groups, our DNA groups, guys with guys, girls with girls. And then we have a discussion in here. We let you guys discuss and engage in dialogue about the word of God. And then we open up the floor and we kind of go back and forth. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ engaging in the word of God together. Because there are a lot of questions like Simon the magician. Did he get saved or did he not get saved? Why did God withhold the spirit until the apostle came? What was God up to? But let me zero in here as we kind of land this plane. Starting in verse 26. I want to look at this ministry from the many to the ministry of one. I want to show you how ordinary people live on mission. Remember, Philip's just another one of the underqualified, everyday, Jesus-loving guys who know that God is capable of big things. Verse 26, let's pick up the story. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go away from the revival that was breaking out in Samaria. This doesn't commute in conventional wisdom, does it? Leave the ministry where much fruit is happening. And I want you to go get on this dusty road. Go toward the south. To the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Do you see what the author is doing? He is building a comparison here. Verse 27. And he rose and went. Praise God for obedience. I don't know if he heard the Spirit of God audibly speak in his ear, but he felt the impression and he got up and he went. May we become a people who know how to listen for our Heavenly Father's voice, the prompting of the Spirit. Here's what I can tell you about the prompting of the Spirit. It will never be in contradiction to the Word of God. And you can always ask other faithful men and women if what you heard seems to be in line with the truth of God's Word. You can bring me your Word from the Lord. I'll tell you if it's right or not. Not that I always know. But we want to learn to listen for God's voice, both individually but also in community with each other. God's never going to contradict himself. Philip obeyed the Spirit. He rose and he went, verse 27. And it just so happened. Listen, can I tell you that seeing the sovereignty of God is a reason for us to look for God at work? Because the sovereignty of God is all over this passage. It just so happens that an angel of the Lord told Philip to get up and go to this dusty road. And it just so happens that when he got there, what? An Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. It just so happened that this guy was on his way back from being in Jerusalem. Perhaps he was there for Pentecost. We don't know. Verse 28, he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he just so happened to be reading the prophet Isaiah. Not everybody had a, the scroll of Isaiah, y'all. Like, do you see the sovereignty of God here? Okay, God is at work. I want to show you how Philip engages the eunuch here. Verse 30. Oh, no, verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip runs over to him, hears him reading Isaiah the prophet and asks, hey, do you understand what you're reading? It's brilliant. I cannot describe to you how important learning how, uh, how to ask really good questions is in our apologetic and evangelism practices. He simply asked a question. 
hey, do, do you know what you're reading there? Do you know what you're reading? And of course he didn't. Because, you know, it just so happens that God was orchestrating this entire event. And the rest is history. We read about it. The eunuch says, no, how can I know unless someone tells me, come on up, man. We call this a gimme in church circles. And so Philip gets up and he starts with this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 to 56. And he starts unpacking and pointing to the fulfillment of that being Jesus Now, a bit of an aside on this eunuch, because I know you're going to ask these questions, and let me save myself a bunch of typing, but quick word on the eunuch. It's believed that he's a proselyte to Judaism, which means that he, being a eunuch and an Ethiopian, he was outside of the family of God, the people of God. He wasn't Jewish. So being a proselyte of Judaism meant he was doing the best that he could to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He only had one problem. He was a eunuch. How do I want to do this? A eunuch, uh, nine times out of ten, was an individual who had a portion of their body, you know, which had been mutilated. And because of that malformity, according to the rabbinic law, he could never enter into the temple. He could never go past the temple gate in Jerusalem. He'd just come back from Jerusalem, y'all. Because of his deformity, not only could he not enter into the temple to worship with the rest of the Jews who were going into the temple, he could just offer up his praises at the gate. He could also not get into the mikvah, the ritual bath, which would have cleansed him, allowing him to then go into the presence of God in the temple. So here's the Ethiopian eunuch on the road reading Isaiah, wondering, oh God, are these promises for me? Do you accept me? When my broken body doesn't give me access into your presence, oh God, please speak to me through your word. Now that's me reading a little bit between the spaces, but I imagine coming back from Jerusalem, knowing that he didn't have access into the presence of God, he was wondering, God, is there space for me? And God heard that prayer, and he sent Philip. And he didn't know that day that the prophecies of Isaiah would come true. Do you know that Isaiah chapter 56 verses 3 through 8 say this about eunuchs? You ready? It says this. It says, God will give eunuchs a name better than sons and daughters and an everlasting name that will never be cut off. If he kept reading in Isaiah 53 and got to 56, he would have read those words. And instead of reading them, God sent him a preacher. Praise God. Praise God. No wonder... A little bit later, it just so happens that there's some water. And the eunuch says, what prevents me from getting in the water? And Philip's answer is nothing. Nothing. Praise God. Praise God. This eunuch longing to be accepted was accepted. And the way that God orchestrated that divine appointment started with asking a question. Let me tell you a story and finish this up. I remember reading a story about a pastor who one night lived in Chicago, and it was a normal routine Tuesday night. He was taking out his trash to the curb, uh, and it was freezing out. Those of you who understand what it feels like up north, we don't have to, we don't have that problem here. Uh, But he decided to not take his shoes because, you know, he knew it was going to be a quick drop off. Uh, Of course not. God's at work here. Uh, But so he's running his trash can down to the curb, no shoes, toes are freezing, and he drops off his trash can, looks up, and he sees across the cul-de-sac his brand new neighbor doing the same thing. 
But of course, he knew that God would understand he didn't have shoes on. So he turned to walk back to his house. And the Spirit of God stopped him dead in his tracks and said, no, no, turn around, go. Go engage your neighbor. And so he did. He went to the end of the cul-de-sac. He exchanged names, did some pleasantries, introduced himself, and they went about their ways. Well, it just so happened that for the next year, every Tuesday night, same time, same place, they took their trash out, and they would, they would banter at the mailboxes. And, of course, they became friends, and after a while, that pastor engaged this man with the good news of the gospel and ended up leading that man and his whole family to Christ, GBC. Do you have a neighbor that you've been meaning to visit? Do you have a new coworker that God has told you to engage in a conversation? Do you have a gift that you're supposed to give to, this, to the family that's struggling down the road? The students, is there somebody that God has placed on your heart who goes to your school? If so, God could be up to something, GBC, and you, like Philip, you might have a chariot waiting for you. We're called to live on mission, folks, but we're not alone in this call. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and if we would learn to listen to the Spirit of God, we would hear him say, get up and go. Here's what we're advocating for, church. A vibrant belief in the Spirit's involvement in our everyday lives. This daily joyful welcoming His leadership to tell us to go where He wants us to go. To talk to who He wants us to talk to. To give what He wants us to give. And to love who He wants us to love. And guess what? That's everyone. Including people like the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch who are on the fringes of society and the fringes of faith concerning our faith. See, this whole chapter is a reminder that God's ways are not our ways. God moved Philip from the ministry of the many to the ministry of one. That's for you. That's for you to be reminded that this isn't the only ministry there is. No, no, no. God has equipped us as your pastors and communicators to equip you to do the work of the ministry to the one. That's why we're launching our DNA groups next week. That's why next week, March 7th, we're calling our entire church into launching DNA groups. See, we're going to become a church that makes disciples, who makes disciples by gathering, by going, by growing, and by giving. Those are our environments of disciple making. And our grow environment, our DNA groups, we've talked about it. They're smaller, more intimate groups of guys with guys, girls with girls, three, four, five at the most. We're calling our entire church next week, Sunday after church, to launching DNA groups. You know how to launch a DNA group? Three easy steps. Find your people, grab your guide, and check in and let us know. Find your people, two, three, four folks. They could be your friends. They could be your coworkers. They could be the people you work out with on your softball team. If you have two friends, you can launch a DNA group. Grab your guide. We've curated a nine-week course that's very easy that's gospel-centered, rooted in our identity in Christ and calls us to living out the mission and then check in for encouragement. We're gonna ask those of you that are gonna launch a DNA group to text DNA to a number that we'll give you next week. And by texting, we're gonna give you a questionnaire with a few questions so that we can come alongside of you, so that we can encourage you and equip you and coach you along the way because we are convinced 
That something like this DNA group launch is going to help to saturate the entire Heartland region and every nook and every cranny of where we live, work, learn, and play with the, play with the good news of Jesus. And so my last commercial of the morning, start praying for who your two or three or four people are so that next weekend you are ready to launch DNA groups with us. We have no idea how many folks are going to be about it, but we're excited about it. Because this is the call on our lives. Being obedient to the Spirit of God, leading and prompting us to make disciples who make disciples. What should our response to resistance be? One, we need to see the sovereignty of God. God's hand in all, over all, orchestrating all things in our life. And our second response to resistance needs to be, as we go, we need to sow gospel seeds. One, we got to know the gospel in order to do that. If you don't know the gospel, let's join a DNA group. April 7th, we're going to be kicking back off our Grace University classes. Oh, man, I told you no more commercials. Uh, but we're going to be kicking off our April 7th Grace University classes, and we'll be having our Gospel Basics class on campus where we can share with you what the gospel is, the past, the present, and the future implications of a God who loved us, is loving us, and will always love us. We want to equip you, church to live in community on mission for the good of our cities and the glory of God. Just like Philip did, the underqualified, regular Joe who believed God was capable. Do you believe he's capable? Are you ready to be used by God for the good of our cities this next week? Wow, no one said yeah. <laughs> but I heard your spirit say amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this privilege of calling your body, your church, into the work that you died and rose to call us to. Thank you that we're not alone in it. Thank you, Jesus, that you live in us. Thank you that your spirit empowers us and you have given us one another so that we don't have to be lone rangers in this mission. Would you continue doing the work of connecting us with other believers so that we can link arms and go forth to make disciples who make disciples? And all God's people said,